Thanks for tuning in to the Hope Church Podcast. We hope that you're blessed and encouraged to walk out the gospel as you listen to this message. We'll be in Matthew chapter 2. The Christmas story, Christmas narrative is full of a lot of truth, right? So one of the things I like to do is read the Christmas narrative uh, in June and July and remind myself that it's not just for December. There's so much. And so what I want to talk to you about today is just worship and the connection between worshiping Jesus and Christmas. So Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and have come to worship him. That's why they came. They didn't come to find out if he was really the guy. They came to worship him. Amazing. When Herod the king heard this, so who is Herod? Herod is a descendant of Esau who traded his birthright for a bowl of lentils. Herod was an Idumean, an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. He is someone who had delegated authority from the Roman Caesar. Herod would have been familiar enough with um, the story of the Messiah because of his ancestry and because of where he came from. So he knows a king is coming, but Herod is the one who sits on the throne. So his response is obvious. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. So he had an opportunity to do the same thing the wise men did to worship but instead he's troubled. The word means vexed. He's not just a bit perplexed and bothered. He is tormented. The condition, when, you, when the name of Jesus is spoken, the response of, um, our response is directly related to the condition of our heart. Pagan Zoroastrian priests worship, and someone who is familiar with the story is vexed. Interesting. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, so the entire city is troubled. We'll find out why in a little bit. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes, chief priests are the religious leaders, and the scribes were the religious lawyers. Remember, the Jewish faith, um, judicial decisions were made from the law of Moses. So the scribes were religious lawyers, and those in first century Judaism, decisions were made not in a Roman court per se, although that would happen, they were, they were also made in a um, Hebrew court. Jesus was not necessarily tried and found guilty in a Roman court. He was initially tried and found guilty in a religious court. Those are the scribes. These are the people who study the law of Moses, and because they're lawyers, they make decisions based on their interpretation of the law. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, 
And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the ruler does not do what kings like Herod and the Roman Caesars do. The ruler that God sends will not reign. The ruler will shepherd. Amazing. Remember, shepherds in the first century were considered so inept, they were not allowed to give a testimony at a legal trial. How interesting is it that those who were initially drawn to the Christ child were shepherds? Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But we know that's not true, right? After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So today, for just a few minutes, I want to talk to you about worship and worshiping Jesus. And our worship of Jesus is tied to quite a few things. But Christmas reminds us that sometimes the form that God's promises come in and the timing of God's promises can have a negative impact on our worship. So what I just want to remind us all today of, one of the themes in the Christmas story that is relevant 365 days a year is regardless of our circumstance and regardless of the timing of God and regardless of how God fulfills his promises, he is worthy of our worship. Not just as a king, but as a, as a child. Anyone can worship a king whose eyes burn with fire, right? Anyone can worship one who comes back on a white horse and a sword, a double-edged sword comes out of his mouth, and that will happen. But to worship God as a child is a bit offensive, is it not? And worship is supposed to be offensive because it contradicts our high view of ourself. So a few thoughts. One, God's kingdom often comes in unusual forms. So in the Christmas narrative, we see that religious scholars who knew the prophecies, they knew them very well, 
of the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God, um, they missed the entire moment. So the wise men see the star, and Herod summons the chief priests and the scribes, and they know how to answer every question. Hey, what's the deal about the star? The wise men are here. Unpack that for me a little bit. And they know how to answer every single question down to the detail. Well, it's, it's the Messiah. It's the Son of God. We've, for thousands of years, we've known that a king is going to come. So they knew, but they missed the moment. I want to read it to you again, verse 4 and 5. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. It's a reminder that familiarity can strangle worship. It can strangle it. You know, when you, I don't, if, when you come in contact, remember what it was like when you just met Jesus? Do you remember that? Have you, have you forgotten what it's like to be lost? Have you forgotten what it's like to be rescued? Do you remember what it was like when you first met him? Right? And then maybe it's not you. Maybe it was, it's just been me from time to time where over the years, um, I think it's, what, 27 years now that I've, I've uh, been aware that he's real, that over the years, sometimes we can just become familiar with things, right? Like John 3, 16, we can quote it. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. I know that one. No, for God so loved the world, he gave a son. You see the difference? When we just slow down, yeah, I'm familiar with that verse, but we just slow down, it gets our heart again, doesn't it? So it's something that we all need to be aware of, but the religious scholars and the scribes teach us that because they were too familiar, they missed their opportunity to worship the one. They confused the prophecies of the first coming with the prophecies of the second coming. We know that. We know they're looking for a military ruler. They are looking for a political leader to emancipate them from Roman rule, and yet God comes in an unusual form. He sends a child. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Isaiah 9, verse 2, talks about the child. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. What was their response when they saw the great light? You remember John chapter 1 talks about it. John the apostle says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Later on, he says, The Word becomes flesh and made his dwelling place among us. But he talks about how the, um, the world did not uh, know him. The world, uh, you know, the, the world saw a great light and yet the world did not know him. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. As with joy at the harvest, and as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Verse 5, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? For unto us a child is born. So Isaiah says right here, you're going to be looking for a military leader. 
but all of the weapons and all of the garments that soldiers wear are going to be burned. Why? They're no longer necessary. Why are they no longer necessary? For unto us a child is born. So they got verse 5, but they ignored verse 6. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful. Full of wonder. And counselor, he's full of wisdom. As a child, he's more full of wisdom than all of the religious legal scholars combined. How do we know that? It says it in Luke chapter 2. At the age of 12, he's sitting in the midst of all of them, answering and asking questions. And they marveled at his wisdom. He is wonderful, counselor, mighty God. The mighty God who comes in the form of a child. The mighty God who manifests his glory to the world and the kings of the earth ignore him, but the shepherds draw near. Mighty God, everlasting Father, and he's the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Has your peace level ever dipped? Mine has, right? It says here, and of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. But sometimes my peace level dips. I'm thankful that his doesn't. I want to exchange my peace level for his, don't you? It never stops growing. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So Herod is a busy leader. Herod has a lot on his to-do list. He has authority to rule and reign and he sits on a throne. And because he sits on a throne and he finally achieves one of his goals in life, he is too proud to get off of the throne and worship God in the form of a child. Christmas reminds us that God is worthy of our worship even when God's promises or God himself comes in a form that we do not fully understand or I'll even say we do not fully like. Sometimes it's not about understanding, it's about preference, right? How many of you know when we worship God, we lay down our preferences? More often than not, we will work and strive to achieve some things in life. And just when we think it's time for us to enjoy being successful, God comes in a different form and it's time to surrender. That's the difference between the wise men and Herod. Herod has achieved some success. It's time to worship. He doesn't. The wise men were very successful, as we'll see in a moment. And yet they laid it aside and they presented their gifts to God and they worshiped him. Christmas reminds us that God fulfills his promises often in forms that are very unusual. But God's kingdom often comes also at unexpected times. It's one thing to worship God when what's going on in our life doesn't line up with what we know to be true about God. 
It's another thing to worship God when the timing is off, when it doesn't feel right, when it's not convenient, and when it is certainly not easy. Remember, by the time the Christ child comes, it had been 450 years since anyone heard or saw from an angel, and 400 years since anyone heard a prophetic voice. That's a long time. Do you remember what you ate for breakfast two weeks ago? I don't either. Can you imagine what it's like to go 400 years without ever hearing anything prophetic from God? Remember, they, don't, they didn't have access to the content we do. They couldn't just pull out their phone. They couldn't search their email history. All they've got is what is written or what is orally handed down. And if we don't remember what we ate for breakfast two weeks ago on a Saturday, it's highly likely that there is a big disconnect between how God felt about things and what they thought. 450 years since an angel appeared, 400 years since a prophetic voice was heard, many people felt and thought that God was absent, but God was very near. God came himself. Listen to what Luke chapter 2 verse 7 says. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Sometimes the innkeeper gets a bad rap. We don't know anything about the innkeeper. We don't know uh, what his, his background was. We, it's, it's easy to assume that, you know, God shows up at his door and he was too busy for God, but we don't know anything about the innkeeper. What we do know, however, is the shepherds got it and the wise men got it, but other people didn't, like the chief priests and the scribes and Herod. So what we, what we can surmise about the innkeeper is regardless of what he did or did not know about the Messiah, is if the wise men who live really far away can get it, then the innkeeper could have been aware as well. But there was something about the innkeeper that made him um, ignore God at his front door. When I read this yesterday, it, kept, it made me uh, think about Revelation 3 when Jesus just stands at the door and knocks. And I, not, it's not enough for me or you to hear the knock, right? We've got to be willing to open the door. The innkeeper had no room at the inn. Maybe business was too good. Business was too good. For the innkeeper, it, it was related to his occupation. Christmas reminds us that sometimes things like work and a hobby and a hidden sin or something really, really good and healthy can distract us from God when he's at our door. And we worship God regardless of the timing of God. That's one of the truths that I find in the Christmas story. Joseph and Mary, remember, the parents of Jesus, they worked through the timing of God. Sometimes the timing of God isn't easy. Sometimes the timing of God isn't um, something that we can just say, oh, well, this is God, that's fine. Joseph and Mary had to work through it. They had to work through it. Listen to what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
we learn a lot about his parents, don't we? Joseph was a good man. He was a good man. Uh, he, he didn't want to cause any additional shame to come upon Mary, so he's going to divorce her quietly. He had the right to divorce her. She's impregnated by somebody else. But this time it's God. It makes absolutely no sense. It's God, though. And then listen to what happens. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. All of this took place. All of this took place. The part about the angel appearing to Joseph and talking took place because it was written. But the scandal of Joseph going to divorce Mary that is part of all of this. So the timing of God brings something supernatural, like an angel showing up and talking, but the timing of God also brings scandal and challenge and perplexity. All of this takes place to fulfill what was spoken. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph and Mary did something that the innkeeper didn't. In verse 20, it says, Joseph considered these things. During the time of him pausing and waiting on God, that's when the angel comes. I'm learning that more often than not, heaven responds after we wait. Could you imagine what would have happened if Joseph would have just been rash? If he would have just moved at his own pace and his own timing? This is so inconvenient. I'm betrothed to be married. I've got plans. She's pregnant. I'm going to move on with my life. It's not what he does. He considers these things. And when he pauses and he waits on God, then the angel comes and speaks. But it's not just Joseph. It's Mary too. In Luke chapter 1, verse 38, after hearing the news that she's pregnant because of God's timing, this is what it says of Mary. She responds, let it be done to me according to your word. Let it be done to me according to your word. So Joseph and Mary both have this internal heart posture that says, you know what, I don't understand, I don't get it, but okay. That's worship. When we, when we just, okay, God, that's a form of worship. Listen to what it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 15 through 20. When the, angel, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And when they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered. Why did they wonder? Because he is wonderful. 
All of them wondered at, the, at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, their worshiping, for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So Mary treasures and ponders. Joseph considers the innkeeper had no room and no time for the timing of God. Worship is, is very, it's closely linked to our response to the timing of God. And sometimes the timing of God isn't convenient. But God is worthy of our worship regardless. And for just uh, the few minutes we have left, I want to draw our attention to the Magi. What's going on here? So who are the Magi? So remember in Matthew chapter 2, it says that the religious scholars, the chief priests and the scribes, they knew how to answer all of Herod's questions about the Son of God, but yet they didn't worship God. The Magi have a very different response. The Magi show up and they worship Jesus. So who are the Magi? Um, you could call them Zoroastrian priests. They were from the Medo-Persian Empire. All right, and it would be similar to like the tribe of Levites in the Old Testament. So when you think of the Magi, think they were like the Levites for the Medo-Persians, just like the Levites were the tribe of priests for the Hebrews. So the Magi, their primary role is they would uh, they were steeped in astrology. They looked at the stars to hear from the gods. But they were like the religious cultural architects of the Medo-Persian Empire. And one of their primary jobs was to crown the next ruler or king over their empire. And so kind of the way it went down is the Magi, uh, when, they, when they felt like they heard from the gods, they hopped on their horses. They were known to be very um, astute at horse riding, something of which I cannot relate. But they were uh, skilled in, in riding a horse, and between 50 and 100, it just depends on a few things, between 50 and 100, Magi, or Medo-Persian priests, would get on their horses with 1,000 elite Persian soldiers in front of them, and they would travel to where the next king of the empire lived, and they held this Massive ceremony to crown, and it was always a guy, to crown the man or the young man to become the next king over the Medo-Persian Empire. So the Magi aren't just a handful of guys that, you know, are just wandering through the desert at night making no sound. They have a thousand horses, a thousand horses that go in front of them. You can hear them coming when the desert serves as a natural amphitheater. From the Orient to the Levant, they're traveling through this natural amphitheater and you can hear the thunder of the, ho of the hoofbeats from the horses. Now we understand why Herod is troubled because it's not just three guys that read some philosophy. It's a group of people whose one of their sole purposes is to crown the next king over the Medo-Persian Empire. 
And remember, Herod's authority doesn't come from the Medes or the Persians. His authority comes from the Roman Empire. So Herod is a bit nervous. Is something going on that I'm unaware of? Has a great army amassed on the other side of the Euphrates River because he doesn't have satellite technology. He's terrified. What is happening here? The Magi come in all of their pomp and their circumstance. And they don't come before Herod and bow before the king of the region. Watch this. There's this massive convoy of wealthy, influential, powerful people. They see this star and they travel. They don't show up and find the weak old Jesus placed in the feeding trough. They find Jesus the toddler. They find the toddler. When you, when you read, that's why Herod said all of the babies two years of age and under, I want you to kill them. Kill all the male children two and under. So they're not there the week after Jesus is born. Jesus probably knows how to walk. More than I guarantee he knows how to pick something up and throw it at you when you're eating dinner, right? So this is toddler Jesus, and they don't come and bow before Herod. They come to an impoverished family, steeped in poverty, so poor that they offer two birds, two birds in the temple as a, as a religious offering, which was the offering of the poor, this massive convoy comes to a little hole where a family steeped in poverty is taking care of their firstborn child. And they worship. Could you imagine? Could you imagine Mary and Joseph? Poor people. People whose family doesn't get it. You can't tell me that everybody and their extended family believed Mary and Joseph. Do you have people in your life who think you're a little bit wacky because you talk to somebody you can't see named Jesus? There is a scandal. He is referred to as the son of Mary in the Gospels. An offensive term that deems him to be the child of an illegitimate relationship. He was not called the, the son of Joseph. There is this scandal, this man and this woman who are steeped in poverty. People talk about them. People make fun of them. They don't have two nickels to rub through their fingers, and all of a sudden, the royalty, not the chief priests, not the scribes, but people from the Orient just come onto their property and worship their child. Amazing. Amazing. And what do they do when they worship? In verse 10 and 11, this is what it says. They bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So a few thoughts really quick on worshiping Jesus regardless of the form and the timing that God's promises come. First is this. Worship centers the reality of God in our life. Gold was a gift you only gave to royalty. You did not give a gold ring to the woman you wanted to marry, guys. You only gave gold 
to royalty. What the wise men are doing, they're saying of the Christ child, he is a king. They are, they are saying that Jesus is the majesty. Not when he comes back on the white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth, but he is the majesty of heaven in the form of a child. They give him gold. They also give him frankincense, which tells me that worship must be a sacrifice. Remember 2 Samuel 24, 24. I will not sacrifice unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. There's a difference between obedience and sacrifice when God speaks. Obedience is rational. Like who, who, well, we've all done this. It's called sin, but I mean, it's, it's completely illogical for God, the sovereign God, to speak and we just ignore him and do our own thing, right? Again, we've all done that. I pray we never do it again. But it's irrational to do that. But you would think, yeah, if God speaks and says, do this or let's go here together, of course, you're God. Of course, I'm going to respond to you. But obedience is different than sacrifice. It's very different in worship. When I'm talking about worship. So when we worship God out of obedience, yeah, of course, he's the king of kings. We'll spend eternity worship, worshiping him. It doesn't take much to do that. But when we worship him and it costs us something, sometimes God asks us to do things and it's easy to obey, but then it gets really hard and then we have a choice. Will I sacrifice and worship or will I just obey him when it's convenient? I will not sacrifice unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. They bring frankincense, and frankincense speaks of a sacrifice. It was an aromatic powder that was used in sacrifices. So when they would light the sacrifice on fire, this aroma would, would emerge. It was a spice. They recognized that Jesus is not only the majesty of heaven, but he is God himself. Gold, he's a king. Frankincense, he is God. But worship is also prophetic. Because when we worship God, we are, we, what we are doing is we are, um, how do I say this? We are placing our ex expectation that God will do what he does in the future before it happens. Myrrh was an embalming um, product. It was an anesthetic. It was mixed with wine. It was used to dull pain. Does this sound familiar? It was used to cover odor in decaying bodies. What does myrrh speak of? It speaks of the fact that this king, this God, in the form of a child, will one day die. And the ultimate sacrifice, the king being the sacrifice for our sins. Myrrh, in this instance, their worship is very, very prophetic. It speaks of the crucifixion of the Christ child when he's a man. This is mind-blowing, and all of this is happening. And the chief priests, the scribes, 
and a host of other people, actually the entire city, because it says earlier in Matthew 2, the whole city was troubled. It tells me that the city doesn't come out and worship. So God finds a group of pagan priests in the middle of nowhere and draws them. And they travel for what, a year? Two years? I don't know. They travel a long ways. And they show up in the middle of nowhere to this home that belongs to a family steeped in poverty. And they acknowledge the majesty of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and the crucifixion of Jesus by worshiping him and offering him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But lastly, worship places us on the right path. I want you to look at verse 12. It says, let me read it. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. When we worship Jesus, it affects the direction we take in life. It would have been the convenient thing to go back the way they were familiar with, but they take a different way. Why? Because they were warned in a dream not to take that way. I would suggest that had they not worshipped Jesus, there's no way they would have been warned not to go that way in a dream. One of the safest, probably the safest way for you and I to make sure that we live a life fully yielded and centered to the will of, to the will of God is to be people of worship. Because when we are before the face of God, when we're before the face of God, everything that he sees, we catch a reflection of in his eyes. It's one of the truths surrounding Christmas. Regardless of the form and the timing that the promises of God come in, he's worthy of our worship. I'm gonna ask you to stand your feet. I'm not, uh, I'm not a musical person, but charity is. And um, we're just going to worship God together before we leave. Pastor Charity, just lead us in whatever you want. And uh, let's just pause. And let's just pause and think about 2021 for a second. And let's just think about the knocks at the door. The knocks at the door when God was there. Let's just think about the form that some of God's promises came in. Let's think about the timing of God. And it hasn't always been convenient. It hasn't always been easy. But in this season, we celebrate God becoming a person. We celebrate God leaving heaven and coming here to die for your sins and mine. 
And so, Lord, in this moment, we are going to worship you and we are going to take our gold, our frankincense, and our myrrh. We're going to say, Jesus, you're royalty, you're king. Jesus, you're the son of God, you're deity. Jesus, you paid the ultimate price on the cross for us. You're the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we worship you today, the Christ child.